Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her. He will have no lack of grain. She does, she does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. And a portion of her maid servants she considers a field and buys it. For her profit she plants a vineyard. She girds, her, her, she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hand to the distaff and her hand holds, its, holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, she, yet she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her house. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes her tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders in the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands. Let her own works praise her in the gates. Today's sermon text is Genesis 47, verses 27 through 31, and this is entitled, If I Have Found Grace in Your Eyes. So, chapter 47. Uh, Verse 27 says, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Now, before I get into the uh, sermon, I want to say something. So it's on the uh, video that I produce on YouTube rather than uh, uh, adding it later or or whatever. I want the people that watch on YouTube to, to know this. Um, in the past few weeks, I've had a couple of people that have offered from other places around the nation to uh, assist in this church, and that means a great deal to me. I want all of you out there to know that, because we uh, you can't tell from the video, but we're a very, very small church. We meet in a strip mall in just a little private building, and uh, uh, that really touched my heart. And I've got some uh, posts on our Superior Word website and uh, some emails from people that are following on YouTube, and they've been very gracious with their comments about, uh, you know, our approach to the Bible, because it's a much different approach to the Bible and uh, sermons than most people are used to. 
but the people that have emailed me are very strong Bible believers, and they're people that love the depth of the Bible. And I can't change who I am and what I uh, present. And so to know that there are other people that uh, uh, appreciate this type of sermon means a great deal to me. And those that have been willing to uh, send a gift to me, you know, to help keep this ministry going means a great deal. And I wanted to thank all of them personally uh, before I actually got into the uh, sermon. And one other thing that I want to say for the people on YouTube who watch these sermons, I also post them on the Superior Word website in written format. Some people like the written format, some people like YouTube, and then some people like both. And they are, I do this word for word. I prepare these to the word of what I want to say, and then I practice them out loud at home eight times before I give them at church. And that way, what I have on the paper is exactly what you will see on YouTube. So if you want to make notes, you don't have to sit there at home and make these notes. You can just go to my uh, uh, the Superior Word website, and you can cut and paste anything you want. And this is free to the world. I don't charge for anything I have. Everything that I uh, put out on Facebook or on uh, uh, the website is something that I want people to have so that they can be blessed in Christ. So there's no charge for it. There's no copyright. You are entitled to copy anything and use anything that you want. And you can use them in Bible studies or, or whatever else. But I wanted the people on YouTube to understand that in advance, is that uh, uh, all of these sermons are in writing, and you can copy and use that any way you'd like to. Uh, having said that, I'd like to uh, tell you that in 1941, General Douglas MacArthur was the commander of the U.S. Army forces of the Far East. And uh, after the attack at Pearl Harbor, the United States entered the war. And following very soon after that, I mean just days after that, the Japanese invaded the Philippines. And by 19, uh, February of 1942, which was just a very short time after the U.S. entered the war, the Japanese had such a hold on the Philippines that President Roosevelt ordered MacArthur to relocate to Australia. And upon his arrival there, he made a promise to the people of the Philippines. He said, I came through and I shall return. And this wasn't taken very well by Washington and they asked him to amend his words from we, or uh, to we, from I, but he refused. And for almost four years, he led the army forces under him. And eventually, the overwhelming might of the United States military beat back the Japanese to the point where his promises could be fulfilled to them. On October 20th of 1944, he kept his promise to the people of the Philippines, arriving on the island of Leyte. While snipers were still there, they were active in the area. There was the sound of sporadic mortar fire ringing out in various areas very close by. He asked for a landing craft, and one couldn't be secured. And so he simply waded off the boat through the waters of Lady and onto the beach. In his prepared speech, he said, People of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two peoples. We have come dedicated and committed to the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over your daily lives and of restoring upon a foundation of indestructible strength the liberties of your people. For almost four full years and through much death and destruction, the people of the Philippines awaited their deliverer. Even to this day, Douglas MacArthur is a hero to the people of the Philippines. He's held in extremely high honor for having kept his word to them. And I can attest to this because I've been to the Philippines. I have a daughter from the Philippines. They have roads named after him. They have hotels named after him. You say his name there and they just, they love that man. 
I'll tell you something, though. In the first year of creation, man was attacked by a much harsher foe than the Japanese. The devil himself came against us, and he deceived us. And humanity was imprisoned, and the devil became the ruler of this world. But the Lord God promised that he would return. A deliverer would come and cast out the aggressor. Our text verse today comes from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those in the Philippines were confident in MacArthur and his promises, and their confidence was rewarded. Those in this world who trusted the Lord their God and had been confident in his word were also rewarded. The Messiah came and defeated the devil for any and for all who call upon him. The Messiah will come again and will rule some wondrous day. This is our hope and our expectation. It is a hope which is anticipated in today's five verses and one which will surely come about. God's wonderful plan of redemption is carefully recorded for us in his superior word. And so let's turn to that word again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts is the days of Jacob, the years of his life. It's verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. Exactly as was promised by Pharaoh to Joseph, the people of Israel were planted in Goshen. The name Goshen, as we've seen a few times in the past, means drawing near. In Hebrew, the name Egypt is Mitzrayim. It means double distress. Mitzrayim then is a picture of the Gentile world without God and without the covenant blessings. At the same time, though, Israel is drawing near to its deliverance from the famine and from the exile from, uh, which they have had from Canaan, even though it's going to be a 215-year wait for those things to come about. There in this land of double distress, they will live and they will await their return to the land promised to them by God. In a dramatic parallel to this, their situation here, living in the land of distress and yet out in a secure and open place, which Goshen is, we read these words from the 118th Psalm, which uses the word Metzar, which is a shortened form of Mitzrayim, or Egypt. It says there, I called on the Lord in distress, Metzar. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The parallel to the picture is perfect, which we're seeing here in Genesis. The 118th Psalm is a song of deliverance centered on the work of the Messiah in bringing salvation to his people. It's an ideal reflection of the years ahead for Israel as they are delivered from the bonds of Egypt, which in itself is a picture of the greater deliverance of God's people from the bonds of the devil and from sin. Everything about this time in Egypt then and the coming Exodus is used to picture the incredible work of God for all people in his overall plan of redemption. One of the immediate advantages of God's plan in the journey of Israel to Egypt is that it kept the covenant people together. If you go back through the previous 46 chapters of Genesis, there is a continual pattern of family separating. Cain was separated from his family after committing his wicked deed against his brother Abel. Noah 
and only seven family members were separated from the world they knew and the millions of extended family members as they came to usher in a new life in a new age. Abraham was called out from a land that he knew to a land that he wouldn't know. Back in the land that he was at was his family and everybody and everything that he had grown up with. And then he got to that land and Abraham and Lot were separated because the land could not support them both. And then the same is true with Jacob and Esau. They were separated because the land couldn't support them both. Others were separated for various reasons as well. Isaac and Ishmael were separated by Abraham at God's direction to ensure that Isaac remained the sole recipient of the covenant. Even for a time, Judah departed from his brothers and the family took up residence in Adullam and then a couple other places. Had that continued, there would have been a breach in the cohesion of the family of Israel. However, God intended for the sons of Israel to remain united as a clan in order to establish his purposes which lead to the Messiah. If Judah had remained separate or apart from them, or if they later separated in any other way, they would not have been able to assume control of the land of Canaan once again. If they did separate, they would have divided into their own warring factions, which is actually something that did happen later in their history. What God did in bringing Israel down to Egypt was ingenious. By directing the famine as he did, they had to remain together to keep the entire family alive. Eventually, they were brought down as a group and placed in one location where they wouldn't be able to divide because as shepherds, they wouldn't be welcome anywhere else. And in the location they were given, they could prosper and so they would have no need to move anywhere else. Their growth then would not necessitate division, but rather greater cohesion. The plan was ingenious. Eventually, the single and cohesive group would be brought out as a unit to receive the law and then be prepared to enter their promised possession. Everything that seems random and arbitrary is exact, it's precise, and it's filled with more than just planning, but detailed pre-planning that could only have come from the divine creator who is working out his plans within the framework of his creation. It is, to say the least, astonishing to see. And I want to give you an example of this because everybody here has been either separated from somebody or separated from a job or separated from something in their life, maybe where they live, they're taken out of an area. And we think that that is the end of the story. Israel is leaving the promised land. They're going down to this unknown land. And they don't know what the future holds, but God does. And they are just simply a picture of every believer in Jesus Christ. They know exactly, he knows exactly what you're going to do with your future. You don't, but he does. And so that's why we have to just take our future and put it into his capable hands. There's a perfect example of this. When I was living in Malaysia, this was back in 90 through 93, I had my children. And they were... Uh, they're growing up. They started out before school and they went all the way through uh, kindergarten and one of them was about to enter first grade and uh, they, it was time for us to move back to America. And that has to be tough on a little child leaving all the friends that you've made. They're in this little kindergarten called Tadika UE and they wore these cute little uniforms and all of their friends were there and they'd play together. And it kind of bothered me that they were... Uh, uh, facing leaving this and I could really see it especially in my son he took it kind of hard my daughter I wasn't too sure about and uh, she and my wife came back to America first and when they arrived my mother was all worried about my daughter as well and so she took my daughter Tangerine off to the side and she said Tangie I want you to know that you're in a new land and it might be difficult because you've left all of your friends mm -hmm. 
And before she could say another word, my daughter said, oh, but I get to make a lot of new friends. And she said, I've never worried about my granddaughter since then because she has a positive outlook on life. Whereas my son is more like me. He doesn't really see what's coming in the future and he likes the way things are. He likes the stability. And when we are faced with a change like that, it can cause us stress in our life. And that's the kind of thing that every single person here can go to this account right here in the account that we've been looking at for these many, many sermons and see that God had a plan and it is going to work out in a beautiful way. So just rather than being told that it's going to be okay, go to the Bible and you will see that it will be okay. That's my little life application for you from this verse right here. But it does continue. It says, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. The multiplication of Israel seems very baffling to many scholars. The Bible records a total of 75 people within the covenant community who came to Egypt with only one named daughter. And yet within 215 years, this small group of people is going to total, according to the Exodus, 603,550 fighting aged men, along with women, children, and even old people. The number will actually then be between two and three million people coming out. And for this reason, many people disbelieve the biblical account. They think, how is it possible that 75 people can become that many? But this does not take into consideration many things. First, Jacob had lots of daughters. He didn't have just one. Only one is recorded, and the reason that her name was recorded was given many, many long sermons ago. If you want to see, look at the uh, birth of Dinah. It's back in chapter 30, I think. And then something happened to Dinah in chapter 34. And she is recorded for that specific reason, all pointing to future redemption and the work of Jesus Christ. In addition to this, there would have been a multitude of unnamed servants along with their families who came with Jacob to Egypt. They're all a part of the same clan, basically. And they could have numbered into thousands at this time, as we've seen throughout several sermons. And finally, there will be, according to Exodus 12, verse 38, a mixed multitude who will depart with them. These would have been assimilated into the records of the individual tribes of the sons of Israel. And this is not without biblical support. In Ezekiel chapter 47, for the people who join to Israel, who dwell in the land, the Lord gives them this direction. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourself. And for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you, they shall be to you as native-born the children of, uh, among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Regardless of the mixed multitude of the future, though, who will be assimilated, just as the Bible has shown us in that precedent, in the immediate time, while in Egypt, they are told that Israel multiplied exceedingly. It is a testament to God's hand upon them. They have been kept together. They have been given good land that produces much. And above all, they have his divine blessing upon them. No problem with the numbers that are coming in the future. Verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Jacob entered the land of Egypt in the year 2,299 from the creation of the world at the age of 130 years. However, he continued on in Egypt for 17 more years. And interestingly, it suddenly dawned on me that this is the same amount of time that he had with his son Joseph before Joseph was sold off to the Egyptians by his brothers. He was 17 at that time. So like bookends on the span of Joseph's life until the death of Jacob, these two 17-year periods mean that in and all, Jacob had 34 years with his beloved son. 
That is actually close to and maybe a bit more than Mary had with her own beloved son who, like Joseph, was given the title, the Savior of the world. Verse 28 continues, So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Vehi yamei Yaakov shenei hayav, and the days of Jacob, the years of his life. Again, as the Bible records, as it has and as it will, the days of the life of the man. In other words, our lives are reckoned not so much by decades and years, but by days which accumulate into years and into decades. It is our constant reminder that each day is our only day. The ones which are past cannot be recollected and used again, and the ones which are future cannot be counted on to come. We are to live out our one day in the presence of God, hoping for another, but understanding that he has already numbered each and every day, and he may even today require our soul of us. Jacob was born in the year 2169 from the creation of the world, and his death at 147 years of age occurs in the year 2316 from the creation. Jacob, who is Israel, lived 77 years in the land of Canaan before moving to Padan Aram, where he spent 20 years. After that, he moved again to Canaan and lived there for 33 more. So he spent a total of 110 years in the land of Canaan. And finally, as directed by God, he moved once again from the promised land to live his final 17 years in Egypt. The events of the life of Jacob were used, if you were here during those sermons, you know, in a most astonishing way to reveal future events in the history of redemption. Only God, who knows all things, including the future, could have so carefully woven those stories and their intended fulfillment together in the way that he did. Astonishing stuff from the life of Jacob. And uh, just so that you know, this past week somebody sent me an email and they, she said, oh, you know, there's all kinds of full-length Bible movies on YouTube. Something I didn't know. I mean, you get them on Netflix and other places, but YouTube has them as well. And I have YouTube that I can hook up to my TV. And so we did, my wife and I, and we watched The Life of Joseph, which included much of The Life of Jacob. It was a three-hour movie, and it was exceptional. It was by Ted Turner Productions back in 1999, I think. But I want to recommend to you that if you want the link, send me an email. I'll send it to you. Uh, go on to YouTube and just type in Bible full-length movies, and there are a number of them, and they are outstanding. I've seen many of them myself. One of them is um, one we watched last night. It was on creation to the flood then it was all done in morocco it was all done in the original scenery basically and it was word for word from the scripture everything and then what they do is occasionally insert scripture from the psalms or from uh maybe the book of the song of solomon's or something so i recommend these highly i just wanted to throw that in while we're here studying the life of joseph i called on the lord in my time of distress the lord answered me and set me in a broad place he took from me the feelings of overwhelming duress with comfort and hope, my fears he did erase. The Lord is on my side, and so I will not fear. He has brought me safely through the days of my life. He has been with me year after year through times of trouble, hardship, and strife. And so the Lord I will glorify in him. I will praise with all of my heart and throughout eternal days. Our second thought today, if I have found grace in your eyes. This is verses 29 and 30. Verse 29 says, When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, I'll stop right there in the middle of the verse, the Bible speaks particularly of 
two different types of death for the individual human being. There is the death of the spirit, which is separation from God. And there is the death of the physical body, which is the end of this earthly life. The first death, the spiritual death, is inherited, but it can be reversed. In an act of faith in God's provision through the work of Jesus Christ, man is regenerated in his spirit, and this is eternal. It is being born again, John chapter 3. For those who are never born again, the death of the physical body means that the spirit will never be received by God. For those, the Bible gives a term. It's called the lake of fire. This is the rewards for a self-inflicted wound which is never healed. And so a wise man made it very easy for us to remember this thought by giving us these words. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Jacob was born twice, and he had no fear of passing over the great abyss of physical death. And in an act of grace, God bestowed upon him the knowledge that his time on earth was coming to a close. The many stings of life would be behind him, and only a blissful anticipation of eternal glory would remain. His death, then, cannot be seen as a type of punishment, but rather as a reward. The punishment would be continuing on in a life of ever getting older and more tired of useless days under the sun. Instead, Jacob's reward would be eternal life under the heavens. Knowing that this time of passing was quickly closing upon him, we're told that he summoned his beloved son Joseph. This meeting, which is recorded here in the Bible for us to participate in, is given for us to learn from. We are hopefully to gain both insight and wisdom as we read these words. The ancient ritual has been passed on to us, the blessed recipients of witnessing a drama, not recorded with a video camera, but by the mind of God as a gift for us to share in. Verse 29 continues, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Now if I have found favor in your sight is literally translated grace. This type of language is normally spoken of one who is in a subordinate position to one who is in a higher position, or one in need to one who possesses the ability to meet that need. The latter is the case here. Jacob has a need, and he will make his request to one who can meet that same need. In this request is seen a rite which is only the second and the very last time that such a rite is recorded in the pages of the Bible. When things are recorded only twice, we must ask why, and then we should determine what the significance of the occurrence is. Both times that they're noted, it is with the assumption that the one being charged, Joseph in this case, understands already the significance of the right. And so it is correct for us to infer that this was an ordinary custom of the times, and yet it is a custom mentioned but two times. Why? Anytime the number two is mentioned or anytime something is recorded only twice, it is given to show us a contrast and yet a confirmation of something. Only twice in the Bible is someone asked to take off their shoes because they're standing on holy ground. Why only two times? Why the shoes? What is the contrast and what is the confirmation of the two events? These are the questions that we should continually ask ourselves as we find these hidden treasure treasures which are found in God's superior word. The number two, as I said, it shows a contrast and a confirmation. Day versus night. The Old Testament versus the New. They contrast and yet they confirm the word of God. Jacob and Israel. 
You have Jesus, who is divine and he is human. The nature's contrast, and yet they confirm the con the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ. You have the spiritual, and you have the physical. They contrast each other, and yet they confirm the uh, doctrine of anthropological hylomorphism or the dual nature of man. These are the type of things that we should ask ourselves in the Bible. And so, in order to understand the immediate significance of Jacob's request to Joseph, as well as the contrast and the confirmation of what it's picturing, we need to go back to the life of Abraham and read the only other time that this ritual is conducted. In Genesis chapter 24, these words are recorded. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Under the thigh is the source of man's posterity. It is where the life or the seed continues on as a starting point to bring in the next generation. In Abraham and Jacob, it is where the seed from which the Messiah would eventually come is derived, just as promised even to the very first man and his wife, to Adam and Eve. Under the thigh is also where the covenant sign was given to Abraham, a sign which continued through all the way down to Jacob. It is the sign of circumcision. It is a picture of cutting away the sin from man. It is a picture of Christ who was born of a woman, but not a man, thus cutting away the inherited sin nature. And under the thigh is the symbol of the man himself as the head and authority over his household and from whom his household is derived. Placing one's hand there in an oath then is tantamount to professing surety of accomplishing the oath in reverence and in allegiance to the superior who has requested it. It is a picture then, ultimately, of the one from whom all life came. As Christ formed man and breathed into him the breath of life, to swear upon the man under the thigh is to invoke allegiance to the one from whom man originally came. It is to this sacred spot that Jacob now asks for an oath from the ruler of the greatest country on earth. And yet, despite his exalted position, Joseph is subordinating himself in this act. First, having come from Jacob, and secondly, having been asked to swear to him. Verse 29 continues, Please do not bury me in Egypt. The request is about his internment. It's not about something he hopes for in another person, nor is it about something that will continue on the line of the people of Israel or somehow to usher in the Messiah. It is simply not to be buried in Egypt, the land of double distress. It is not his home, nor is it where he wishes to be interred. But dead is dead, isn't it? So what difference does it make if he is buried in Egypt, in Canaan, or in Thailand? What possible difference could it make to Jacob after he's dead? In other words, this request must be a hope which somehow transcends this life. Verse 30, But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Jacob is asking to be taken out of the land of double distress, the land of Egypt, and to be buried with his fathers. He desires to be placed along with them in their burial place. In two more chapters, we're going to read the same charge being given to all of the sons of Israel. 
There in chapter 49, it's going to say these words. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought. I'm sorry, the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. The purchase of this cave is recorded in detail in chapter 23 of Genesis. And to understand fully the importance of that cave, you should probably go back and watch that particular sermon. It is beautiful in what it pictures. It is where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah were all buried. Instead of being buried with his beloved Rachel, he has to be buried there instead. It is a significant spot which looks forward to the resurrection of the righteous. It is to this location that he asks for his remains to be interred. So what is the contrast between the two accounts, that of Abraham and this one of Jacob? The contrast is that Abraham was pursuing an earthly bride for his son in order to continue on the earthly line which would lead to the Messiah. Jacob, on the other hand, was looking forward to a heavenly reward from the Messiah, which would be realized in eternal life. The first was in anticipation of the fulfillment of the earthly promises to the covenant people. The second is in anticipation of the fulfillment of the eternal promises to those same people. The first is earthly, the hope of the coming Messiah. The second is heavenly, hope in the coming Messiah. Further, Abraham's request was in Canaan. Jacob's was outside of Canaan. The God who monitors the oaths is not limited to a territorial bound border or boundary. And thus, the contrast of the two accounts gives us the confirmation of God in this beautiful treasure that we call the Holy Bible. It gives us the confirmation of his son's authority over both the earthly and the spiritual realms. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the creator and he is the redeemer. He is the giver of life and he is the one who decides its termination. And yet he is an authority even over the man in death. In all things, he is supreme over the physical and the spiritual. The confirmation of these two accounts is seen in Jesus, the Son of God, and yet the seed of the woman. Verse 30 continues, and he said, I will do as you have said. I will, according to your word. Without even a hint of questioning why, Joseph simply agrees to the request. The promise is made, and the commitment now rests upon his shoulders. What I have spoken will surely come to pass. The guarantee is from the Son. The guarantee is from Zath Nath Pa'anea, the Savior of the world. And the guarantee is from the Lord over Pharaoh's house. And the picture is exact. The earthly promises to Abraham and his seed were confirmed in Jesus. The heavenly promises will be confirmed in him as well. The guarantee is from the Son. The guarantee is from the Savior of the world, and the guarantee is from the Lord over heaven's realm. The guarantee is from Jesus. If you've wondered why Jacob, who actually is the father of Joseph, would ask for grace in the matter, it's perfectly explained in the picture it reveals. We have a need, 
Jesus Christ has the ability to meet that need. We don't come to Jesus and claim eternal life. We come to him asking for his grace, and he is pleased to grant it. He can and he will. And so, because we've come to the point where we're talking about claiming something in Jesus' name, I'm going to give you one of my pet peeves, as I do once or twice a year, so that you don't forget this. We do not claim anything in Jesus' name. It's one of the most offensive things to me that I see in all of Christianity is when people claim healing over somebody else. I remember uh, uh, somebody that uh, I do mission work with from time to time will give a prayer when somebody is sick and he'll say, in in his stripes we are healed. And he'll use that verse from Isaiah 53, claiming healing over somebody. I claim in Jesus' name healing. By his stripes we are healed. Not recognizing that that verse has nothing to do with physical healing. It's explained in detail by Peter at the end of the Bible. It's healing of our spiritual nature and our sinful state. And people do that, and then what happens next week? We go back, and the person is still sick, and they're disillusioned with these Christians that claim something that doesn't happen. And three weeks later, they're still sick, and then they eventually die of it, and they've been disillusioned because we claim something we shouldn't have. I've seen people claim new cars, claim wealth and prosperity. I saw it on Facebook this morning. Somebody says it's the year of double blessing for you, and people are claiming stuff in these posts down there. And that kind of stuff goes nowhere with God. The Bible never never authorizes us to claim anything in Jesus' name except his promise of eternal life by receiving Jesus Christ. Don't be presumptuous, which leads to sin. Rather, be humble before the Lord and ask him gracefully and with humility to grant your request. We have people in here we pray for for healing all the time, and we don't claim it. We just simply ask, Lord, please, if it is within your will, please heal this person, and he will if he so chooses. And if he doesn't, they have a better home somewhere else anyway. So don't claim things in Jesus' name. And you'll hear me say that about twice a year because I find it offensive. Bury me with my fathers there in the cave, in the field of Ephron the Hittite, which Abraham bought. And it is now the place of Abraham's grave and Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. And so too, my burial plot. It is in the land promised to us by God. And in this land of Egypt, it is not our home. Let it be temporary that here you do trod but only to the promised land let your heart roam. Here we have no true rest, but pilgrims are we, and someday God will return us home to Canaan safely. Our third thought today, the word of the Lord. This is verse 31, and it's our last verse of the day, by the way. Then he said, swear to me. Jacob has had the reassurance from Joseph that he will comply with his requests, but he goes further so that the matter cannot be revoked under any circumstances by asking him now to pronounce an oath about it, The word is binding when the word is spoken. The word of the Lord, which is recorded in the Bible, is an oath. When God speaks, it is a vow in and of itself. Therefore, when we hear of a promise made by God, all we have to do is go to the word. And if we find it there, that word is confirmed. We don't need to ask God to swear to his promise to grant us eternal life. His word confirms what he determines. Verse 31 continues, and he swore to him. The one who vows is expected to perform. Jacob has not only asked the ruler of Egypt, but his own son to accomplish this vow. It is under the authority of Pharaoh, and it is with the assurance of the son. In this sense, we find ourselves just like Jacob. We have been given a promise, and it is under the authority of God, of God himself. The son has spoken. He has given the assurances, and all we need to do is just to rest in them. 
Nothing else is needed because nothing greater can be obtained. The highest of all authorities will keep his word. We can rest in this. Verse 31 finishes with this thought. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. To end the chapter, we read from the Hebrew text that Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. In these five verses, he has been called Jacob twice and he has been called Israel twice. The two times he is called Jacob, it was speaking of his life, his number of years alive and his number of years in Egypt. The two times he's called Israel, it was speaking of his approaching death and his worship of God. There is Jacob, the man of flesh and bones who walks on the earth, and there is Israel, who is dependent on and in anticipation of his God, his God in heaven. The two contrast, and yet they confirm the physical and the spiritual man who fellowshiped with God. According to the Hebrew text, this man of God bowed himself on the head of the bed. The implication is that he worshiped God as he bowed, acknowledging him and giving him thanks for the surety of the promise which was just made. However, as happens from time to time, something comes up which throws a monkey wrench into our Bible knowledge. In the book of Hebrews, which is all the way back towards the end of the Bible, I think it's the 58th book of the Bible, this event is actually recorded differently. There it says this, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Referring to two different incidents in one verse, one of blessing his sons, which is coming up next week, and uh, also the second one, worshiping, leaning on the top of his staff, rather than bowing himself on the head of the bed. And guess what? This is how the Greek translation of the Old Testament records it, which predates Jesus. Staff rather than bed. The difference, though, between the Hebrew for bed and the Hebrew for staff, which is bed is mitah and staff is mate. They're exactly the same letters, and they just have a few vowel points above them, which did not exist when the Bible was written. They were added later, much, much later, after the time of Christ, to help in pronunciation, word clarity, and comprehension. The New Testament is what is correct here. And when the scribes who inserted the vowel points did so, they probably did it to keep Jacob as uh, looking as if he was using this staff as some type of an idol. But if he were an old and feeble man, he would worship leaning on the top of his staff simply to stay up. So that is certainly correct. But either way, what is implied is that Jacob was thanking and he was praising God for what has occurred. This is where this account ends today. It is a story of anticipation concerning the promises of God. Jacob was looking forward to the Messiah, and he was looking forward to the resurrection of the righteous to eternal life. Both have been anticipated since the fall of man, and both were still anticipated at his time. But we, sitting in this church here, we are the blessed recipients of something that he lacked. We have the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the surety that the Messiah has come and that his work is sufficient to restore us to God and to make the hope of eternal life possible once again. Like Jacob, whether on a bed or whether leaning on a staff or whether we're out there jumping for joy at the work of Jesus Christ, we too can praise him for his promises because many promises are still to come. Our Lord has promised to return again and he will. And he has promised to bring us to himself, and that will come about. He has paved the way in his first coming, and we will be carried along that avenue at the rapture when the reality of eternal life will be realized. But this reality 
although offered to all, must be accepted in order to be realized. Christ did die for all. That's known as unlimited atonement. However, his atonement is limited in scope. It is limited in reality because we must choose to accept or to reject it in hopes that you have or that you will in the future receive Jesus Christ. I'd like just one more minute to explain to you once again the work of Christ very clearly so that you can know what to do to be saved eternally through his blood. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned. Everybody knows that they have sinned. We've all told a lie. We've all done something that has offended God. In the book of James, right towards the end of the Bible, it says that if you err on one part of the law, one part, one lie, you've broken the entire law. It's as if you've murdered. It's as if you blasphemed. It's as if you've done anything else. One sin breaks all of God's law for you, and that separates you from God. But, you know, you're already separated from God because we saw that today. We have inherited this separation from him through our first father, Adam. He's our federal head, and we are in Adam. And what God has done is he has given us the choice to move to a new federal head, which is Jesus Christ. All have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We're spiritually dead. We'll eventually physically die. If we don't take care of the spiritual before the physical ends, we will be eternally separated from God. And then he gives us wonderful words of relief, release. But, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All he wants is your faith. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want you to go beating yourself on the back with a, you know, a whip or anything or, or giving up your job and going off to some foreign country to be a missionary. All God wants from you is faith that his plan of redemption, which is so exactingly detailed throughout the pages of the Bible, which leads to Jesus Christ, is true. I cannot save myself. I've offended this infinitely holy creator, and I want him to be my substitute. And God is pleased to do it. Your punishment is executed in a substitute at the cross of Calvary, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. The exchange is made, and it says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It is done. It will never be taken away from you. You will never fail so far that you will be separated from him again. You'll lose rewards maybe, but you will not lose your salvation. And rest in that eternal joy, knowing that Jesus Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. Call on him today. That would be my request for you. Our uh, closing verse is from Romans chapter 14. Listen to how this so closely resembles what we saw in Jacob today. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. There's Jacob. And if we die, we die to the Lord. There's Jacob. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. See the two rights in there? Abraham's right and Jacob's right. Right in that one verse by Paul, he sums it up so beautifully. Next week is Genesis 48, verses 1 through 7. It's entitled, Adoption as Sons. That'll be our 120th Genesis sermon. And I will assure you that uh, the adoption of those two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, is as important as any doctrine that you're going to find in the Bible, how it affects all of the rest of redemptive history. Wonderful, wonderful pictures found there and then the week after that. On 2 September 1945, General Douglas MacArthur accepted the formal Japanese surrender aboard the USS Missouri. 
thus ending World War II. After this, he was named Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, and for all intents and purposes, he was the absolute ruler of Japan during their transition to a democratic society. Eventually, during his command of the United Nations troops in Korea, and through a disrespect of the lines of authority which are established by the U.S. Constitution, General MacArthur was relieved of his command and ordered home to the United States. Unlike the sad end to an American hero, the rule and authority of Christ will never end. He was perfectly obedient to his father, and he prevailed where every one of us has failed. His throne is an eternal one, and his promises to those who call on him are sure, and they are reliable. Christ has come. Christ will come again. Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. And this Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. As always, I have a short poem today. We only did five uh, verses, and so I only have uh, five verses of poem for you today. But I've been taking the book of Genesis and making it into a poem, and we are ever closer to the book of Genesis in a, a poetic format. Here we go. This is called The Hope of Israel. So Israel dwelt in Egypt the land, in the country of Goshen willingly, and they had possessions there. They did expand and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Behind him were the days of trials and tears. So the length of Jacob's life, a life of joy and cheers, was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and to him said, Now if I have found favor in your eye, please put your hand under my thigh. Do this, my son, he pled, I will soon be dead. And, he, and deal with me kindly and truly. Please do not in Egypt bury me. But let me with my father's lie. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their interment place after I die. And he said, I will do as you have said. I shall do for you this thing after you are dead. Then he said, swear to me. Yes, he pled. And so to him he swore. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed in thanks to God whom he did adore. Jacob walked the earth as a man. Israel hoped in God in whom he did trust. And from the moment his life began, he was destined for more than just returning to dust. His hope like ours is in eternal days, a promise spoken by God in his word. Like Jacob then, let us fix our gaze upon Jesus, our life-giving Lord. In him is found the source of life everlasting. The promise is more sure than anything at all. To him, let us all of our crowns be casting, and upon his glorious name, let us call. Hosanna in the highest to Jesus our Lord. Praises, glory, and honor to the incarnate word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wonderful pictures of your Son, which are time and time and time again revealed in your word. Every single thing that we see, every single story keeps pointing us to him and how desperately you just want us to see him in your word and then to call on him because you love us that much to make it all about Christ and all about him restoring us to you. What kind of love is that? What kind of love would reach down to a person like me and say, I want you beside what you, despite what you've done? How can that be? But I, I just know that it's true. I know every word of your word is absolutely perfect and pure, and it's there for a good reason. It's all about Jesus. It's all about your love for us and our reconciliation to you through him. 
And so we want to just give you praise and glory and honor for that. And we want to do it in his name, his beautiful, his exalted, his glorious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 11 where Paul uh, gives us these instructions. And certainly he uh, was a, a very close friend of Luke. They're recorded together many, many times in Scripture. And uh, his words come from specifically the Gospel of Luke along with whatever the Lord specifically told him uh, during his own training from the Lord. So these are the words that are recorded there for us. For I... Receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you uh, from the Lord Jesus, that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And he would have given a blessing over this. His words would have been this. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu olam hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have given a blessing over this as well. He would have said these words: Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, Creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do, I don't think I do. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so sorry. I usually try to count these before I do this. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the chance to come and to uh, participate in your table, remembering that you are coming again, and that's why we're doing this. And so we do proclaim your death, and we do anticipate your return. And we just love you, and we praise you. Please be with each person here in the week ahead. Get them home safely. Take them to wherever they're going in safety, and uh, we'll hope to see those that will be in Sarasota back here again next week. And uh, just, we want to give you praise and glory and honor for what you've done in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.